Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Print Design Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and thanks for stopping by. Y'all ready to hear about print? I bet you are. I sure am. I am a huge print fan, absolute print fanatic, and I'm excited to bring to you today another great conversation with a very talented graphic designer who I've known for a while now. I have interviewed this guest on the Quickie Podcast, and we've stayed in touch. We've had a number of conversations, and as soon as I saw this guest share about this project on their Instagram, I reached out and I said, yo, we got to get on the show and talk about this. Tell me about how this all came together. Tell me about this book. So who is that fine young gentleman? Well, ladies and gentlemen, today my guest on the show is Jay Farrakane, also known as Angry Bovine on Instagram, a super talented graphic designer and a swell gent who also owns a ranch. And he has his office in like a vintage Airstream. So me just saying that, you know, he's pretty cool. You know, he's cool. And before I tell you the project that we're going to talk about, I first wanted to say, if you're a print fanatic and you're here, so I'm sure you are, you want to learn more about print and what goes into it and how these designers are creating these incredible print pieces out there in the world, go check out Print Design Academy on YouTube. The description is down in the, you know, or the link, sorry, is down in the description of this uh, podcast as well. Go to our YouTube channel, subscribe, and see all of the videos and stuff that we're putting out there to teach you graphic designers how to be experts in all kinds of print and print design. Anyways, the project that we are talking about in this episode is the Answer Motocross Racing Catalog that he worked with the team on in development and and bringing it all together. And what I loved about talking about this is how he really detailed out, like he was the guy who put all the pieces together, but you had photographers here in a different, in one spot in the United States, photographers over here in a different spot in the United States, then a couple of other team members, like this whole big team came together to shoot the assets, create the assets, um, and bring everything together to create this catalog. Now, they also brought this thing together during like the crazy 2020 pandemic time. So trying to coordinate that, Jay also shares with us how the book was on again, off again. No, just digital. No, print. Yeah, we are going to print it. No, we're not going to print it. Yeah, we're going to print it. And the roller coaster ride that that was. We also talk about action figure packaging and some other cool print stuff that we've come across. But guys, this is just, this is just a swell conversation. And y'all, y'all are going to learn something. So I'm going to stop chatting right now. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get to it. Another fantastic episode with my friend, Mr. Jay Farrakane. Cue the music. Welcome to the Print Design Podcast. The show where we talk about all things print and packaging. We go behind the scenes with designers and talk about the print projects they designed that really rock their world. From file prep to holding the finished product in their hand and all the key decisions in between. So let's talk ink on paper. Jay, welcome to the Print Design Podcast, my friend. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Dave. 
Yeah, it's been too long. And before we really dive too deep, I wanted to say I love your shirt. Make America <laughs> punk again. It's uh, it's something that we could all like we can all agree on. We can't agree on much right now. So yeah. in America particularly. So maybe one thing is we just all start listening to better music, you know? So. <laughs> there you go. I was driving my daughter to dance the other day and flipping through. I went to this like two thousands hits station and like all the I don't even know if this qualifies as punk, but all of like the old Blink 182 songs oh, that yeah, I like totally. that I grew up with. I was like, oh man. Man, I totally forgot about these and like the energy behind it. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, like, you know, as a guy who literally grew up forever listening to punk rock and stuff like that, that, that word moves around quite a yeah. bit, Yeah, but I think there's enough guys my age now who are in creative control spaces that are, there's so many good documentaries out Yeah, there. and that, that's like my, my guilty pleasure. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, there's been a, a, a funny resurgence in what I go back in and listen to predominantly old punk rock stuff. Yeah. Um, it's just been a really cool, cool part of like, I don't know, managing my, even my creative day to day, what's going on in the studio kind of stuff. I, if you walk in, you know, we either have vinyl playing of like old bad brains stuff. And so it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a good deal in here. It's usually not as quiet as when you and I have a conversation. So. Yeah, exactly. We need a little background music. Maybe I'll do that in post. I'll just add a little <laughs> little punk, a little something in the background for this one. <laughs> my my walk-on music, as it were. Yeah, exactly. Jay Barricade. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, we know each other really well, but for the listeners who are new to you, new to Angry Bovine, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm Jay Farrakane, a graphic designer by trade. I run a studio called Angry Bovine uh, based out of Colorado, uh, Longmont, Colorado, actually. And um, I like to say that we kind of specialize in just about everything design. Uh, you know, we're here to talk about print today, but we do lots of stuff in brand building, um, make websites, make apps, direct movies sometimes, logos, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I think in our lead up, you and I, before we got to talk about it, where I always come at design is, well, what are we trying to do and where do we need to do it? And then the medium happens you know print you need to know some special things just digital same thing mm -hmm. um but i i started out in print and so i think a lot of my walk up to problem solving even like user experience and stuff comes from starting in that world um and so and it's still fascinating you know i've been designing since 1996 mm -hmm. it's a long time man yeah and there's still things in print that i don't know Right. There's still things in digital that I don't know. So anyway, um, our studio kind of tries to tackle it all. And, and we work on a pretty, uh, um, I don't know, I have a very like trade work ethic about the stuff we do here mm -hmm. and um, work with clients of all types. We get to do stuff in beer. We get to do stuff in software, uh, get to do stuff in lifestyle, bikes and clothing and stuff like that. So um, I'm never bored um, either. So, uh, that's <laughs> never a little bored. bit about us. <laughs> yeah, I like. That. I think that's like the the title for this episode. Never bored. Yeah, I don't. Designers shouldn't be bored ever, right? So no, it's it's a life. It's lifelong learning. Like with Completely. print, with digital, with new things that are happening in the print space. Um, there's always things to learn and check out, and new ways for you to apply that to whatever design solution you're working on with that particular client and whatever it is you're working on there. Well, and I, I think that's an you know one of the things that I often tell design students because I teach a little bit too here at, at CU, uh, mm -hmm. University of Colorado, which their acronym doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, the, uh, um, it's kind of funny that, um, I tell students all the time, the one thing I can't teach you is to be curious. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, I think that the sign of a designer who might need to go find another profession is if all of a sudden you're like, I don't need to be taught 
anything. I don't need to learn anything. And mm -hmm. I remember uh, I went to a talk with Paula Scher a long time ago, and she was talking about hanging out with Armin Hoffman at some grad school thing. And she looked over, and he's got big headphones on. And he had given the assignment, and he was just standing there listening. And then so later on the day, she says, what were you listening to on those headphones? And this is an 80-year-old like Swiss man, right? Mm -hmm. and he's like, I was listening to New York hip-hop. And she's like, you like New York hip hop? And he looked at her like, well, no, I don't have to like, I need to know. I need to know how people are communicating today. And I mm -hmm. feel, I think that's such a rad trait for all designers. So yeah, always, we be, always be learning. Yeah, no, always, always be, be learning. Yeah. Always be curious. I like that. So Jay, what is your, like you and I are old enough to know the world pre-internet. <laughs> And I'm curious, what was your, or what is your earliest memory of print or packaging? Could be something from your childhood or your teens. God, really the thing that probably stuck with me the most early print packaging was two things, actually kiss action figures and <laughs> yes. evil can evil. Those two, those two things were like huge. So I'm, I, 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 I we're not going to get into birthdays here, but I'm considered, I would bet I'm good chunk older than you. And so, uh, I remember like uh, getting action figures, right. And, and action figure packaging, even through early star Wars stuff mm -hmm. was just like consuming. Now we didn't have a lot of other stuff to preoccupy us, mm -hmm. but I didn't throw packaging away. I kept the card and, you know, the little, the bubble shield that was over the, the dude, yeah. Same with the evil Knievel thing. I don't think I was the kind of kid that would put stuff away, but it would somehow end up under my bed and I would just like look at it and, and just be kind of like inquisitive about it. I do remember distinctly keeping like I had kiss ashing figures, <laughs> the band kiss, which yeah. in visual rad in real music talent, not super great, but like they had <laughs> TV shows and all sorts of stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, their visual brand was amazing. And I do remember holding on to that stuff. Like, I don't, I wasn't a kid that had baseball cards. I had that mm -hmm. kind of stuff as a kid growing up. So, yeah, I had the baseball cards and the hockey cards, but I was big into action figures when I was younger. So I remember the Batman packaging. I had yeah. this, uh, I got this Batmobile for one of my birthdays. And I still remember how that was set in the packaging and, and, you know, designed almost looking like this scene, like it's racing away from something and she's like launching the missiles that come out the side. Now, like is this, it was is so this cool. movie Batman stuff or Dark Knight animated stuff? Uh, this would be Both, early maybe. movie, early okay, cool. movie Batman Keaton, stuff. Maybe. Yeah, Michael Keaton yeah. Batman stuff. Yeah, this was back in, um, I think it was the one like for the, it was right around the one with the Riddler, the one with the Riddler, Jim Carrey yeah. did the Riddler right, right yes. around that time. So it was, it was early Batman movies, but yeah, not Dark Knight, not the new stuff. Yeah, the, see, these, these new kids don't know what they're talking about. They don't know. <laughs> Although I have to appreciate the new Batman voice, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> when, like that just became a thing. Christian Bale just came out and said, hey, guys, what about this? What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know what? We like that. We like that. That's the new yeah, voice. Yeah, do more of that. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, but I, that, there was a phenomenon around that era of Batman movies because I do feel like that was some hallmark timeline mm -hmm. for when movies – really started getting their head around like not only we're we gonna make this chunk of content what's mm -hmm. all the stuff that really brings us to it or makes us relive it and i think that that's really interesting because i remember you know seeing like batman shirts in target and stuff like that and it was so connected and and, and pervasive 
too. Yeah. Like it was literally everywhere. And that's, that's super cool that you like had like your little chunk of it. Yeah. The air of like movie marketing, just soaring. Yeah, completely. Yep. That's the place to be. So, okay. Back in the day, we've got the action figure packaging. That's a strong memory. What about yeah. recently? Have you had any recent interactions with printer packaging where you went, wow, this is like, this is really well thought out or I really enjoyed this experience. Yeah. So I, I bought a, at the beginning of summer, I bought a pair of sunglasses from a brand called rain R A R A E N. And, uh, I have the packaging in my office, but what I really love about it and it is somewhat, um, David Carson ish. So it's mail. You, you know, they've, they've really thought through, Hey, you've ordered a pair of sunglasses. So you haven't Mm -hmm. walked into, you know, the place and you're trying them on. You can do the goofy online, like hope they fit kind of thing. Never works. But this thing showed up in a box that was like, again, back to like, I would bet there were some financial decisions that drove creative. So the outer outside of the box is two color. It's like a white Mm -hmm. cardboard. But once you opened it, it was almost like David Carson inside, like really rad tropical photos, but like kind of done in a collage kind of way. And there's yeah. a little box. And and to me, like it was a really fantastic experience. And in fact, sat on my desk and I think I'd be lying if I told you that there wasn't a time or two that I like, I, I had a couple web projects in between there that I was like, oh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be inspired by this kind of collage effect of the inside and mm-hmm. uh, see if I can kind of rip it off. And I'm a terrible copier. It's been kind of like the, <laughs> I think the secret to my success, even if I'm like, I'm completely out of ideas, I'm going to copy this thing verbatim. It always comes out different. Um, but I did, I, I was really like moved by that packaging. I just thought it was like super cool. And because the inside being full color, I'm like, Oh, I know where they got, you know, they had the dough to do this and it's yeah. gotta be durable enough to not get beat up. And, and so to me, I, I looked at it from a utility standpoint, but it mm-hmm. did take me back to some of that David Carson stuff that I, I really like. And um, you know, rain is a, surf brand. So it t- kind of felt right to me to okay. have that David Carson kind of skate vibe, you know, you know, I, li- I like how you mentioned that Willsworth and pointed that out that, you know, you could you as a designer and with experience in print and creating packaging, you could sort of deconstruct and put together, okay, they did this because it's going to get beat up in shipping. This is why they use this material, but they really wanted to take advantage of this experience. So that's why they went full color on this side and not on this side. Like you could, you can kind of deconstruct it and, and understand the thought process and thinking that went into that. And one of my favorite things to do is to actually deconstruct packaging and explain to people why they did this, you know, with labels, with uh, shrink sleeves, you know, why does it look this way? How is this achieved? How can you do that in your design file? How does that need to be set up in order to achieve something similar? And it's, um, you know, the more you can understand and deconstruct, um, the better able you're able, you can create something with an impactful experience. Well, and I think that the thing too, that, that designers have this really interesting opportunity to do today is to deconstruct mm-hmm. like for us to go look at our Batman packaging or the kiss packaging or whatever it was back in the day. Like that's one thing. It's usually kind of 2d. We probably didn't have in our heads like, Hey, they used the varnish or something. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the job of the designer today. I always say, be a cultural aggregator. This is that Armin Hoffman story. It's like, he's trying to absorb all the things that we have footprints to communicate through. And so Mm -hmm. often I ask uh, designers to look at something and part of the exercise will be, tell me what that's made out of. Like why they choose those fonts. But this comes back Mm -hmm. to why I always say that design is a trade versus it it, it is art. And Mm -hmm. you can't deny that. Right. 
but at the end of the day, it has to be made. And it's, that's where I always come back to this like trade idea. Cause you're like, if it has to be durable, it has to be doing this. Those are all things to factor into any design. And, and if yeah. you're not doing that, if you're only functioning on aesthetics, it's going to be veneered at some point and fall apart in some yeah. part of the experience, whether it's it to make it or, yep. you know, to, to use it. And then as a designer, as you, if you're given a task like that, mm-hmm. I need a box that needs to be able to survive shipping, look really great on the inside and create a really impactful experience. If you don't understand how print is done and you don't understand the materials available, how do you even begin to cross that job? Like, how do you even begin to tackle that? Well, and to, well, that's why I think like when designers go, gosh, if, if I just didn't have any constraints, I would be the happiest designer on earth. And I'm like, man, I want, I want you to tell me all the things I have to do and can't do yeah. because I can zero in on that. Right. And then you can mm-hmm. really like play in that space. But I have a question for you. So do we, here I am turning the tables on you. Yeah. Cause I was thinking about like uh, another uh, package I got, I got one of these, like it's called a box pillow. It's like a square pillow. Okay. Uh, anyway, but the back, the box was all done in two color. Okay. Is two color any cheaper to do these days than say a uh, digital? You have a million colors. Does it drive cost at all? <laughs> yes and no. It it depends on a couple of things. The first thing it's going to depend on is brand aesthetic, right? If your brand is built out of beautiful bold colors and pantones, well, I would immediately say maybe CMYK isn't the right fit for this, or you're going to do CMYK plus some extra colors. Right. But when you're into offset printing, every single color you have on there needs its own separate plate. So in some ways, yes, it can be cheaper to do a two color job versus a full color job, just simply because there's less materials involved. Yep. But when you get into, um, you know, short run stuff, well, digital full color is going to be cheaper than doing two color offset, like Pantone spot color offset. But so it really comes down to the situation. But knowing that and understanding short run goes digital, typically, here's my digital constraints, here's my offset constraints, this is what this brand would fit best with. And knowing all of that weighing in, like you're saying, like, not a free playing field, do whatever you want. No, we want to know. terrifying to be in that space. Yeah. (laughs) You want to know that this has to print in two color. The quantities are saying it's going to print offset. Okay, so that's your arena. Let's see what we can do in that arena. Yep. Well, and this is, you brought up an interesting point that I would say, you know, 10, well, even 15 years ago, mm-hmm. if I was doing a run of brochures for a software client, we'd be in 10,000 and over, like yep. two, two pages, right? Mm-hmm. Now, man, like you do 500 or something and you're like, that's a lot. And in short run does have some predetermining factor where all this sits because like this uh this box packaging i was telling you about um the, with the pillow yeah. i remember opening up it has this really cool like fluo pink hit but mm-hmm. then you could tell that was the only color they chose for the inside and everything was reversed out right yeah um and often i will make tradition like new d- digital designers mm-hmm. limit their color palette like yeah. hey you should try and do this only in two color because i actually think this has been some weird way we're going to come back to um some of these like and they're not new but usability standards like with mm-hmm. the idea of contrast and stuff like that like that's what designers are always aiming for like hey how do i get to maximum legibility right yeah. and yeah. so like sometimes picking only two colors really simplifies that and blah 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 and so it's funny because i have a feeling 
our, you know, I use my print background in everything I do. Mm -hmm. But if we brought some print basics back, I believe it would help digital experiences as well. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And one of the things we said before we started recording here is that the original UX, the original, you know, UI or UX is tangible objects, is print, is packaging, is those, those tangible real life printed things. It's only been in the last 15 years that it's gone apps and, and websites yeah. and stuff like yeah, that. UX right? is not, not new in my mind, at least our mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's because we're so old. <laughs> Just as, he, so. as he, he turns slightly sideways so and gets a cup old. of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, so I'm curious, Jay, you know, even younger designers who don't know anything about print are, can appreciate great packaging iPhone boxes, iPad boxes. Everybody's got those hiding on their shelves. Um, great business cards they've received. Um, cosmetics or face oils and really nice packaging for those products they've received. They hang on to that stuff because it's special. It's just, it's unique. It's different. Why do you think that is? Like, why why do people hang on to print even if they're not print designers? It's, it, it's privilege. It's like, it, I think there's a... And what I mean by privilege is, I mean, you, you get the privilege of holding that thing, right? And that's the one. And a lot of times things that are printed, there is, we just mentioned this, there's a limited number of them, right? So that gives them some like specialness or priority. It's not mm-hmm. unlike limited run vinyls or special versions of a car. I think that there's something precious about that idea that for all our experiences heading into digital and, <clears throat> you know, thank God I don't have a room full of drives anymore that I have to stress about, like, are they going to get wet or die or do something? You know, it's all up in the cloud, but man, it's really cool to have some printed thing in your hand. Um, that is, there's just a privilege to it. And there's, um, I think there's also something that's uncommon in, um, in, in design experiences today Mm -hmm. that it's the act of holding something, even for a moment, it does force you to be there. Right. Yeah. You're not like on Instagram, look like looking through things while there's a news ticker going across and you're getting email alerts. Like you're in <laughs> the notifications are dropping down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're in yeah. that thing. So I, I do think that that's why print is special. And, you know, in this catalog thing that we're going to talk about here, too, if you think about a sales cycle, a lot of times, like it's one thing to be a kid and you're into motocross or you're into skateboarding or whatever it is, and you just like pour through that mm-hmm. thing and you make notes in it or you just look at it like every day, like most, like some people would read books, you know, mm-hmm. but I think it's really rad when sales dudes show up in, you know, to go to talk to a dealer and they, they run the book showing it to the, the to the customer. Right. And they're yeah. walking, you should buy these, you know, these things or look how great our helmets look this year. And as a communication tool, I think that's all one of the things that like really got me excited about design was when I saw, the stuff I was making would help people articulate better mm-hmm. in some way. And to me, that's a really cool place to be as a designer. Like, no way I helped yeah. you do that. And even though I wasn't really there, you know, so. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting. You said about the, you know, the Instagram thing or when you're on your phone and, and you're bombarded with messages and you're scrolling through at a mile, you know, hundred miles a minute, you're not going to remember the post that no. you saw just four milliseconds ago. You're not going to remember that. You're not going to remember that ad that you saw. But with print, it causes you to pause and take a moment and take it in. And what has happened throughout the last year and a bit through all of this COVID time, when everybody's on Zoom now, everybody's doing these digital calls, everybody 
everybody's at home on their phones and screens. Um, these tangible experiences are now desired and sought after. Very desired. Right. Yeah, and needed too, right? Yeah. In, in a way, you're like, gosh, I need, you know, back to our, our talk on, man, I did more packaging this year than I've ever done in my whole career. And it was yeah. because people want to hold stuff. Like in this like Zoom world and we can't go out and see the people we want to. So like, man, yeah. give me something for a second to feel connected to something again. You know? And if you're a designer with, with and, and I firmly believe this, that you, as, as a designer, you should have plenty of tools in your toolbox. If you want to specialize in branding and that's primarily what you want to do, Go for it, a hundred percent. You still need to have a little bit of print knowledge, in my opinion, when it comes to oh, branding completely. and guiding that direction. Um, or if you're exclusively a logo designer, you know, if that's your thing. But all of a sudden, nobody's getting logos made now because uh, all the marketing budgets and the design budgets have dried up and are gone because of COVID. Yep. Well, all of a sudden, if you can pivot into packaging, well, look, that's area surging right now. So having that packaging or print design tool in your toolbox, bloop, little pivot over there and you're still good to go. Well, and I still think too, like, you know, I heard that, that recently that the, you know, the phrase, uh, a jack of all trades, a master of none isn't correct. Actually, I heard it's good. Um, it's, it's something about, um, it actually is a really kind of cool quote and I'll, 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 maybe you'll dig it up and you'll put it on the screen over my face or something. Cause it would be nicer than looking at my face. Yeah. But, uh, give me the, it, give me the hint again. I want to, I want to, it is uh, it, there's a, there's a, the real quote, a Jack of all trades, a master of none. It's actually something like a Jack of all trades is, is more capable or something like that is what it was saying. And, and because it gives you a wider tool set to solve problems with. And, the full um, phrase is a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. There you go. That's it. So see what it's saying? Because yeah. it, you don't have to be a master of them all. You're actually better off being a, a more competent across multiple fissures, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea there is, is like when even when we, you know, you're designing a logo, you should know that that logo in my head should be made in vector because if they want to go from their little app screen to the side mm -hmm. of a bus, yep. I, I can't tell you how many digital brands I've worked on. I'm like, can you guys give me your vector version of your logo? And they're like, oh, do you mean the PNG? Okay. So we have a, we have an issue like, and, and that can change design too, right? Like maybe the branding, mm -hmm. the overall branding system is, Hey, we never use our logo very big because yep. frankly we can't scale it. Um, so right. That's, that's one solve. So, mm -hmm. um, but you're right. I, I think you should have this diverse knowledge, whether it's and and whether it's in economic times of business. But man, it's like to me the the most rewarding part of a brand is when I can step back and I can look at the fabric that got made versus the button or the single stitch. Yep. In my mind, that's that's where I get excited about mm -hmm. design. Yeah, there's a definite appreciation for the button in that analogy, right? Oh, there's an appreciation yep. for the creative and that went into that. But if your only role is the button and they all switch to zippers. <laughs> yeah, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. what, are you, what are you doing? Yeah, so I don't I don't mean that you should you should always do everything, like offer everything. No, yeah. because if you don't love print, if you don't love creating those things, then you're not going to enjoy that. And really, that's what life is about, finding something you really enjoy. But and design as, is a funny trade like that, right? That yeah. you, you, are, you will do a better job if you enjoy it. And I found... 100%. Because I try and break down, you know, like, why am I miserable right now? Not in the sense, like, you know, but like, why am I like not fully 
and it's so funny for us to talk about like, you know, our careers as designers, because like, I look at my dad, you know, as who was a Marine and, you know, he's standing in mud drinking cold coffee or something. And you're like, he's probably not happy. Right. Yeah. But did you, it wasn't, it's a recent development that we should be happy in the careers we're doing. Designers yeah. for the most part are fortunate because we do like what we do. And mm-hmm. I would tell you the times that I am unhappy is when I am like working on stuff that I really wish somebody else was doing. Cause they might be better at it. Mm-hmm. Like, man, I shouldn't be the guy doing the whatever quadratory layer in a a technical website or something like that. I'm just not that kind of designer that has that, that super micro detail or like the 15th layer down in a financial app. I'm not your guy for that. And I, and I think realizing that is a great place to be because you can team up with people who are, Mm -hmm. um, and so anyway, yeah, I think it's a funny world that we, where we try and find our sweet spots. In- and even more in that, in that team thing that you're saying is, you know, when, when you have somebody, you know, that 15th layer and the code or whatever, the, yeah. that's, that's not me. There's guys who love that, who eat that up and partnering with them and to create something is awesome, but you can't create the, create what you're creating in a silo. You need to no. know what happens at the next step. It's like that designer versus production designer, right? Like you can design something that looks beautiful and incredible, but then goes to the production designer and they rip it apart because it's going to look like garbage at the next step. Yeah. Right. So there's that understanding of what's next, what's the materials being used, how is what I'm doing going to apply and translate to that? Is there still a conception that uh, production designers are less good designers because I know partnering with the right production designer, Mm -hmm. like we'll talk about in the catalog, they made the product better. They challenge you on stuff, but I think as a designer, we need to be ready for that. There is no Mm -hmm. monocular vision in, and especially once something leaves your screen and ends up on a sheet of paper Mm -hmm. at a plant, you know, that you probably have never been to, at least Mm -hmm. in my current existence, you need that partner. On yep. the other side, you know. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I would say it's the opposite. I would say that there's a growing appreciation for the production design Thank trade, God. not only because they can take your design and really polish it up and really bring it to life in the form factor that it's going to, but also because the of the design and the training. Like you can go through a four year design degree and you can learn how to create beautiful designs, understand typography, understand layout, understand all of that, but have no idea how to get that to print. So that production designer, usually an older designer, has that knowledge and will take your beautiful design and make it sing over there. So there's a growing appreciation for production designers because they're becoming more and more rare, mm-hmm. but also because they can take your design and really well, make and it I've, sing. And it's funny because I think in print, I've always appreciated those guys. And it's mm-hmm. I think it's because I'm also like, probably not the most technical person, but I think there's a funny thing that in digital design, most of my experiences, like let's say we do a campaign for somebody, Mm -hmm. we might do four, three or four banner ads, but then Mm -hmm. there's somebody's job, generally a junior whose job it is to like take that DNA and stretch it across 50 media sizes. You know, it's like, how do you keep shrinking it down and changing its form factor, (laughs) but let it be the same. That always gets stuck in the camp of, a junior designer. And I think there's some plus and minus to that. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot mm-hmm. of times those designers mistakenly are called production designers. And I usually just think 
you know, it's really great as miserable as it can be for a young designer to be in that production role because in that more digital kind of thing where they're, I often say to designers, your job isn't to um, invent design, it's to extend design, particularly in brands, right? Like you don't go and say, hey, Conoco, we're going to use blue today, right? Like you can't challenge things like that. And it's probably terrible to use a petroleum brand example right now. Maybe, <laughs> can you edit that out? Make a Coke. Um, but uh, <laughs> so, but uh, it is, it's a true thing because I do think as we learn, going back to being creatives and how do we get there, I was mm-hmm. steeped in a print tradition of where when you screwed up, it was made viscerally clear to you that you made a mistake and you should do it this way moving forward. And you mm-hmm. had people who helped you get there. There's something about repetition too, like that some of these younger designers, when they're stuck on a million banner ad extensions, right? That hand that you're building and that kind of constant rebuild and stuff, mm-hmm. trade. That comes back to a very trade-driven approach. You know, you don't get to hand carve the handrail if you're a carpenter, mm-hmm. you know, junior carpenter. They're gonna make you like cut two by fours all day. Yeah. Until you, you get good at that. And I think yep. that there is. I meet people that come out of school and they get like senior job titles too. And I think that that's a strange concept that there isn't like a journeymanship as much. I, I, I have, I don't see it um, as much anymore. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a good point that you say there is, you know, I have also seen designers that come straight out of design school and um, actually even go as far as like being in public media because they created this amazing resume and this amazing presentation to get this great job at this great agency. Yeah. And it goes all over the place, but I I often wonder in the practical aspect of producing within that role in that environment, fresh out of school with, you know, more classroom training than real life training. How is that going to flex and apply? Yeah. Well, and, and I love it. That Maybe you it will. Kept it, I don't know. Well, and I like it that you kept it more mature and, uh, polite than I would, because like, I, I kind of get grouchy. I'm like, well, you've got to just do time as, as like, a young Put designer the time and in. you work your way up Yep. and, and you know, there are, there are, I've met students that come out and you're like, like, uh, so many young design students these days mm-hmm. grew up filming, yeah. taking photos, editing photos. And like, mm-hmm. I work with a brand here in town. And, and if I was to tell you, Josh would say he's not a designer, but he's a designer. He solves problems and, yep. but he does his own social stuff and he runs this fantastic coffee business and he'll be like, using like, I think a version of Photoshop on his phone. And then he runs like social media from there. And for me to like sit down and try and do anything on my phone other than text, I'm like, no way, man, I'm not doing that. But so there is no one way to get to being no. a good designer these days. But man, it, it, it is always like interesting to me to think about like how I came up and then yeah. like where we see some, some designers and maybe this is why I see some younger designers choosing to be really focal. Because mm-hmm. they're like, I use apps all the time. I'm really yeah. good at apps. Maybe they that that it's just where that the whole trade is headed. So yeah, time will tell. Yeah. Okay, Jay, we're getting personal now. Sweet. I want to know it. about the very first print project that you were ever a part of. The first one produced. What was that? Oh, business cards at the agency. I was uh, first job out of college, and I screwed it up. And I paid to have it reprinted by myself <laughs> you out of my out own, of your pocket. own pocket. Yeah. Oh man. Because I know enough about my personality that if I didn't teach myself the lesson, the guys I worked for were fantastic mm-hmm. and they would have been like, Hey, you screwed up. We're going to, can you fix it? And then let's just get it redone. Yeah. I'm like, Jay, you'll never learn this lesson unless you make it 
very this is painful visceral. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, they never knew I made the mistake. I, I got, I went to the printer. I looked, I opened the box. I realized what I had done wrong. I told them, uh, I think I told the guys that the, the printers like behind or something like that. And yeah. uh, I went back, fixed the file, resubmitted. And this was taking it over in like a CD days. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, or maybe it was on a zip drive even. But anyways, long time ago, and I that was my first uh, job, and it went wrong, which is hilarious too. And but you've never made the mistake again. That one I've made. I make mistakes. Yeah, no, no, that one. Yeah. Oh yeah, that one again. <laughs> and that was, you know, what it was. It was a. Uh, it was the file setup. Was uh, they it, the backs were fucked, so it, oh, yeah. it was like a tumble versus like you know being the right thing. So yeah, yeah, we live and we learn. Yes. You well, okay. you hope you learn. If you don't learn, yeah. then you got a real problem. <laughs> the idea is that you would learn from yes. the experience. Yeah. Awesome. So now, Jay, I want to do a deep dive into this print project that we're here to chat about. Yeah. Uh, there's as much detail as we can share. And um, even if we can get into, if you have the information of, you know, what did it cost to print this thing? Because I want designers who are listening to this to understand that print is a real thing. You're creating a tangible object and it costs money. Yeah, but I want to also take um, take the gut punch away. If you're used to paying sixty bucks for a logo, real quick, and like things like that, um, I want to take that gut punch away of you know when you're producing a hundred and twenty page book and you're producing a couple of thousand copies of it, you know that could be twenty or thirty grand. Like like we're, we're, easy, we're easy. it's real money. Yeah. real money when you're getting into those kind of things, which is why it's even more important to understand what you're getting into, understand the print medium and, and where you're going to go with that. So if we could just like, if as part of the story, if we could just start right at the top, like who's the client, how did this project come to be? Um, and then start getting into budget and material selection and, and stories along the way. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's, so I have been a fan of motocross my entire life. I got, mm -hmm. fortunately, um, I got I got asked by an industrial design studio here in Colorado to help them um, in the rebrand effort for Answer Racing, which is, in my mind, one of the the OGest, like, rad brands in motocross. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't redo the logo. It, a rebrand was more about how are we going to reposition them. And so the company, just like everybody, every every company who has the, the legacy they do of, you know, 20-some-odd years, they go through ups and downs, and, and there had been some questions about, um, number one about quality. So one of the things that we really wanted to do is reaffirm that this brand relaunching had a focus on quality. They have a real racing heritage. Mm -hmm. So, um, we came up with this notion that everything we make is race grade, because when you go into a shop, whether you've, you know, never bought motocross gear or whatever, you're like, Hey, which you usually ask the guy in the store, like, which, you know, which one of these is good. Right. And, and I wanted to get, you know, the customer to walk up to the, the clothing and they see it right there. Oh, this is race grade. This is, this must be the best stuff in the world. So we, we went through a fairly lengthy rebrand process. And then the culmination of it is every year, every moto brand drops, you know, whether it's dual season or one year, um, they drop their whole catalog. Yeah. Um, and so this book kind of came out of, um, a couple things, the product line had been changed, lots of new products being introduced, a vastly different like look and feel for the brand itself um, coming through. And, you know, as we got into it, you know, speaking about coming from a digital world, we knew the first place this thing is going to be shared is online, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a PDF for everything. 
-hmm. So we wanted a form factor that's going to look really great on screen. So when, the, when this thing was in spread, happens to be 16 by 9. That makes it pretty easy math when you get to a print object. Mm -hmm. So we knew we were heading down this path of like, hey, this is going to be a tangible book at some point, we hope. Um, so we just addressed it like that, no matter how we were slicing and dicing it or what the economy was doing and um, the back and forths of supply issues at this time were, mm -hmm. were kind of in our head. And um, the other big thing in the in just simply the organization of the design of this book was, number one, we knew it was going to be held in the hand. It was going to be in shops. Um, Answer has a real opportunity with their price points and the quality is, is that they are really great. Um, like, uh, well, that's the word I want to use. They're a great option for uh, introductory level uh, motocross riders. You mm -hmm. So for years, Answer had always done things where you're like, hey, in the book, it's a, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at a picture of guys like me and you riding motorcycles. And then you'd be like, there's a, there's a little subline of all the youth sizes available. And so yeah. what we chose to do was really give them their own section. So as you go through the book, yeah, there's a per, there's a very conscious like design decision being done in the organization of okay now we get to youth helmets because if I'm in this physical world of I'm in the shop, the guy who owns the shop even if they don't have everything in stock they can take you to the youth section and so we had a big break mm -hmm. in that the adult section is all kind of like set up in blacks and it's really rich and premium and then when you get to the youth section it's all kind of like this nice light white apparel section um, and so. Uh, the first step in designing the thing long before we ever put an image on the page was organization. We did a bunch of thumbnails around like, how would we organize this book and how are we going to break it out? Mm -hmm. Because when you get into 120 page books with seven or eight categories of gear and then, yeah. then levels of gear in that each category, right? Like there's a good, better, best in er almost every category that they have, whether it's helmet for sure, or for sure. gear there's a lot to manage. And then you're also managing photo shoots because you're like, Hey, go out and ride with this pro guy dude in Minnesota, which the agency was really helpful about getting people out to that. And I think that's the one thing that when you step back from something like an effort, like a catalog, there's substantial investment in it, not only in just the printing costs, there's investment in asset creation because totally. you're managing multiple fronts on photography alone right yeah especially in a brand like this action photographies in multiple locations with different riders in gear so you have to have gear then you have to have gear to give to a photographer to put in a studio and um you know there's a logistical part of this that doesn't happen um in you know a lot of experiences uh these days that i purposely i really like the unpacking of it i'm a guy that you know if i have a messy garage i like to clean it up because yeah. i love to see it go back take you know chaos and create order out of that yeah it's just a and rewarding feeling it's such a rewarding yeah. feeling because i think at the end of the day you know when you're making a catalog you're the guy that's in it and this was a very uh, individual effort by the way you know you're managing like what's it look like when do those top and bottoms go together and and that kind of stuff and you're like hey we're still missing this photograph you're man you're wearing a lot of hats in mm -hmm. in this design layout and then you're like do we have a lifestyle photograph to fulfill that object. And when you look at the book too, we started to think about it because um, particularly in safety protection prod products for mm -hmm. this industry, you can have one bad test and you don't have that product that year, right? Like mm -hmm. a helmet might not pass a test. So we had to be very modular about the, the way we, we design. 
And so um, if you start to follow this, you'll go through, you'll see there's a little bit of a template. Each section gets an introduction. And, and it's not unlike yep. digital design, right? Like a website, mm -hmm. you have five to seven templates maybe on most websites. And this book probably had, I would bet, eight page types um, yep. from full spread to um, product introduction or section introduction, then to product detail. And uh, one of the things that we got that's really interesting about the motocross world, and I think this is in product most of the time, is in sports like this, you have kind of three views. You have, hey, I'm sitting right next to the guy on my motorcycle. Mm -hmm. Then you have, I'm standing on the sidelines watching this guy go by. And then I'm looking at a photo of this dude in the air. Yeah. So you have these three reads. And one of the things that we were trying to really bring into this is three reads. And the intro spreads to most of the products do do uh, um, kind of a three read vibe. Um, and so that, that's where this really all kind of came from. And, and then a lot of times there's no ideal either. Like the photos that got shot on that day because the light was right or the ground was dry or was wet or whatever it was, it's also what you have. So you have to kind of also be adaptable in all of this. And I think that's the one thing that I've seen design kind of go haywire on is, is when things don't go perfect, which mm -hmm. in my world, they rarely do. And so yeah. I often tend to design number one, really modularly, but also be flexible enough that when something doesn't fit the mold to feel free to make an accommodation for that too. So on the images, when you were just talking about images, you yep. know, with these being shot all over the place at different times and yep. different, you know, throughout the whole process, these, this asset creation in the photos, were you like, did you have to then think about, okay, whatever photo I'm using at the beginning of each section, like you can't have one that's like bright and in a flowery field. And then another one that's like dark and moody in the evening. And like, did you have to sort of align that photo experience and get in there and like edit some of these or? Yeah, you do a little bit of both. So when we, when we did the initial concepts, we presented three kind of rough ideas, you know, we show a cover internal spread and what a product spread might look like. Okay. And they ranged from just trying to get the client to make a decision on, do you like more full bleed stuff? Do you want texture and photo in there? Do you want insets? Mm. Um, hey, we might shoot helmets like this. And so you try and get buy off on that early so that you can get a little bit in front of it. So before the shot, like you're showing now gets shown on screen, mm. we should, we send them some like a, I'll try and give a photographer like a folder of inspiration. Hey, I want yeah. shots like at this distance. But a lot yeah. of times you're going in and you're cropping in, in frame and, and that kind yeah. of stuff in the design process. I do do a lot of color management, like in, in terms of like shifting density of photos and things like that. Cause like you do need to get to some middle ground. Right. And in that particularly motocross happens all over the United States, all over the world. Yeah, the photos in here came from the United States. The interesting thing was, is shooting in midsummer in Michigan is vastly different than shooting in summer in Colorado. Yeah. So you're looking at a shot from Colorado. Some pros were shot in Michigan where it's hazy and overcast and you can just feel the humidity in the photograph. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then we had another guy being shot on the West coast and you're, so you're dealing with a couple different photographer styles um, different camera setups. And so you're mm -hmm. just trying to figure out how to manage that. One of the cool things about motocross is it's dynamic and always changing. So yeah. that sheer fact, I think kind of helps it, but moving over to product photography where that's generally one guy's job and you're aiming yeah. for a lot of consistency. And, you know, if you can have a photographer of the level that's doing clipping and all that kind of stuff for you in a pro kind of way, 
Mm-hmm. Gosh, it makes your job so much easier to be a, a, you know, when you start to place objects in because like you got one guy who shoots the dude doing the cool jump and then you have the other guy who's really controlling lighting and then we can, we can have control over that. In fact, in this shot, we did have some discussion about, um, you know, do jerseys and, and pants go exactly together? And we want, you know, where consumers heads at in motocross these days is actually, they want a lot of, uh, the ability to combine things on their own. Oh yeah. And so we were being purposeful in studio shots around that. And so having options when you get into it too, is the other thing. Don't just tell your product guy, Hey, shoot it this one way, because you'll find out that one way at some point runs out. So you can kind of see these, we had a little bit of a three quarter one direction on jerseys and then the flip flop in the pants so that there is a little bit of just a, a dynamism between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like a, a separation so that when you're looking at it on, um, you know, automatically your mind is going, okay, this isn't like a, a set together. A set. Like these, right. these are just items. Yep. Separates, but you know, these are made by designers too, right? So yep. there's the intention that should you want to keep them together, they will totally work in that way yeah. too. Yeah, um, like the black pants kind of and that that red jersey. Ooh, that looks so yeah. good together. Right, yeah. And so it's fun to see that too because like, you know, when we get to work with this kind of, you know, the thing that we're trying to hold, right? Mm-hmm. You take inspiration from that too and the boldness of it can drive it or you choose in this instance, like the old youth section was done in this kind of like white, very clean kind of way. And we wanted that boldness to just pop right off because the kids want the loud stuff. They want to be on the, you know, they want to be noticed on the track. So (laughs) for sure. Yeah. I can go back to this one. Awesome. Okay. So that's like an awesome background into some of like the photography and the, and the messaging and going through with the client and sort of nailing down an, an ideal direction. And then you get to the, you know, the point of layout and moving things around that way. Now, when you get into selecting materials, you know, the most obvious choices, like, do I go with uncoated paper or do I go with coated paper? Was that a conversation or did that weigh into any of this decision? You know, it was funny. It was a conversation at a very late time. And and a lot of my projects come out of how's this, who's going to go make this. And and so like, even this one was a moving um, target because of paper availability and Mm -hmm. then timelines who could fulfill. um, And I want to say, you know, this is nationwide distribution. I bet you we did somewhere between 5,000, 10,000 copies on this and it's a 120 page book. You used to, I, I don't have an exact number for you, but you start to think about it and it's a substantial investment, right? Oh yeah. Like just in paper and time alone. Yeah. At 120 pages, you're probably somewhere in the vicinity of like three to $5 a book, three being at the higher quantity and five yep. to seven at the lower quantities. Um, you know, so you're talking 25 to 50 grand. Yeah. And then you've got, you got uh bindery that's going to come into there. And then mm-hmm. we did, we chose, I, I am almost an always, and there is no absolutes in design. So it's stupid for me to say this, but I am almost always a matte guy. Like okay. I just, I just love tooth on a paper. Yep. And, yep. but what I like to do is if I don't have the ability to do some sort of uh, varnish or weird finishes and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I will often opt to do a, a kind of a, a gloss or somewhat slicker kind of outer cover in a slightly heavier weight. Most of this book was all done in um, 80 pound mat, Um, but you can kind of see, we got a little bit of a highlight on the outside. 
And yep. so they were able to do a little bit of a different cover finish. And I think that adds a premium to it. We were talking about user experiences earlier. And I think the yeah. job of the designer is, is number one, this thing's going to be, you know, if it was all matte, it'd get beat up and, and, and hung out and to dry at, you know, being spending three days in the shop. But, but the slick kind of gives it a little bit more of a tactile feel. And I think it helps communicate that quality. So particularly in a brand like this, and I always come back to why are we making these material decisions? Yep. And a brand that's really trying to reinforce quality as part of the object, the print has to be that, right? And uh, one of the things, and, and so just so you know, that we, we ended up finding this fantastic outfit in Arizona, Buck AZ. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they do everything in-house, which is great. They did the bindery there, all that kind of stuff. So it was really end-to-end. But one of the great things was working with their internal production designer and having the discussions about how are we going to manage black? And this book in the adult section has a real big chunk of black in the beginning. Um, And one of the things that we were, I was trying to be really conscious of, but honestly not knowing how we're going to, you know, motocross elements, you want to look like a badass. So there's a lot of black in the gears and how do Mm -hmm. we get that to stand out off the background? So working with the production designer to make sure that that effect came through because you know, it'd be one thing to go and do a varnish hit on all the products, like on the jersey or something like that, to get those things to really come forward. We managed that through just black density. So I think we ended up doing like um, a full CMYK mix of black uh, for the foreground objects. And then mm-hmm. background was literally just black. Yep. So it really gave us, gave us a lot of separation. And that that's a technical discussion that really was being thought of early on. And I was playing around actually just doing percentages and, yeah. and then we got managed into a way, thank God I have a, a good you know, production partner. Cause I think they always make your product better at the end. Um, mm-hmm. But that was a, a discussion that came up. And then secondarily, the other thing that we really got helped with when we went to design was you can kind of see a little bit of a texture in this background here. And those line weights on that paper got eaten up. And, and yeah. long before we ever printed it, the production designer brought that up as, hey, we should address this now. And so we did make a couple of decisions and we got to a really great result where it's not overwhelming yeah. the background. You should see it in the production file. It looks crazy. It looks like, how will I ever read white type against this contrasting background? But yeah. he knew that the hit was going to absorb and it would be amazing. And that's the difference between uh, a digital publication where... Um, and I've seen it too, even in PDF where you do do like, let's say a texture in the background. Yep. If you're at like 63% on a screen, it's going to glitch out and do all sorts of weird stuff. But mm-hmm. if you're at hundred percent, maybe it looks perfect. Um, yep. and, and that's just something you deal with in an on-screen world, but in print, it was really nice to have that partner help us manage the, the kind of effects and, and get this to feeling like the level of the gear that's in it. So. Yeah, for sure. And and the part you were saying about the different black backgrounds, you know, when you're printing in CMYK, that 100% black is obviously going to look black, but there is, it's not going to be a really rich, deep black. Right. Yep. But when you build it out of process, what's sometimes called process black or boosted black um, is, uh, or uh, what was the other one? Process black, boosted black. Oh, there's one other term I'm forgetting right now that I've heard. Super black. We call it super, no, super black. <laughs> and when you, you when you build CMYK into that black, it just becomes deep and rich. And when you print both of those side by side, they visually look different and it creates instant contrast. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, 
aiming for that, but not having the way to like really, I was really thankful to have a, a, a guy on the other side that was like, oh, I know what you're trying to do here. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, having somebody that really gets you there was, was, was a great assist. And that's why I say, you know, your, your print partner is part of your design team for sure. Mm-hmm. So do you, from the early conversations with them and, you know, planning this as, a, as an electronic thing, but um, them still wanting to create something in print and get it out there. Yep. Why, why did they want to create something in print still? Why was that important to them? Was that just, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a funny thing. Uh, I think yeah, brand presence in a shop is really important. And it's one thing yeah. to have your gear on the wall, but the pile of catalogs, it kind of, it's it's it, as much as I'm not a big fan of like uh, it's how it's done. It is part of the industry, and so there's a little bit of a um, hey, we're here to play too, which is very important for the brand. I think. Uh-huh. Um, I think uh, also the sheer fact that people could take these home and have them in their hand, or the sales guys really like having that. And when yeah. you're when you're dealing with a an industry like motocross. There's, there's me and you walking into a shop to buy something and we can look at this catalog too. Mm-hmm. There's also selling to the dealer. How do I get the dealer to put these things in his store? So, you know, I think a lot of times when designers go, well, I don't need to know that business stuff. Yeah. I just need to know what, what colors your font or, you know, what font do you use or what colors your logo? What's your PMS value? Blah, blah, blah. Um, I think designers our job is to help people do their jobs in a weird way, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that job is to the consumer to help them buy more efficiently or smarter or more informed. But it's also in, in so much of my background, I do so much B2B stuff yeah. that I wanted to know how these books could help the de- sales guys sell to dealers because yes. getting product in a store is important. It won't end up in the store if they can't sell to the dealer. No. So in that world, these guys, very often rep multiple brands. And so if you can come in and they're doing the catalog walkthrough, literally like flipping it open on the glass table that has all the small parts, you know, in, in every like motocross store, mm-hmm. they flip it open and they're like, Hey, we got new helmets this year. Check out how cool our goggles are before they take them over and show them the muffler brand that they rep and that kind of stuff. Yeah. They have a tangible way to stop. Like what we said about print earlier, it stops you and it, you're not looking at your phone anymore. You're paying attention to that object there. Yeah. And there's a uniqueness to that. And, and I'll just say it one more time, as much as I dislike, Hey, we've always done it this way. This is mm-hmm. one of those ones that it was kind of an honor to be like, yeah, dude, we can help you keep doing that. And we can be more effective about it because the cool byproduct is, and I would love to see a sales guy do this. They take them through all the adult stuff and they're like, by the way, we're focusing on kids. Check out our kids stuff. Cause kids sell stuff sells because yeah. it's somewhat, disposable as terrible as that is to say but kids grow so they need yeah yeah but it kind of creates the secondary market as well of of things you know then being sold online to kids coming up and things like that right so it kind of perpetuates itself a little bit the industry does a very similar thing and a lot of times there's like boot turnover kind of programs that dealers will run and that kind of stuff so kids ice hockey all the same thing exactly yeah so no and i think at the end of the day it was really cool to make an object uh you know that is useful to the people selling the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, Jay, about the proofing and, and, and like, well, I assume there wasn't any press checks to give in that it was no all COVID checks. and they were uh, in Arizona. How did the no proofing press checks, go? Digital, a digital press check, but proofing was a really interesting, um, uh, process because 
it's one thing, you know, I, I drove a lot of the copywriting and uh, let's call it like flavor setups for the section. Yeah. But there's a, there's an, um, an element in a catalog that is, it's undeniable truth, right? Price and part number. Yeah. And that proofing process was laborious to say the least. And, and it imagine. has to be, right? Because you need multiple eyes on it. It's yeah. one thing for design guy J, ADD, whatever I am, you know, we talked about my, my want of details, but this is, this is details, right? Yeah. And a lot of times the process of, um, there's a lot of syncing up. So back to logistics as a designer, I'm in the helmet section and I've got 13 helmets. I need to know what part number, what colorway, and I have to go put that in to the block. And then we submit to client. And I bet the proofing process probably was at least two weeks of, yeah. Hey, we need to go check out it. Why does that part number? And, and it's multiple people too. Um, because I think I can handle a typo, Yeah. but on a business level, a part number mistake is a much bigger deal in, in oh, this absolutely. context, you know? So, Oh, and create confusion throughout. Like anytime somebody wanted to look up that part number through the entire year and a bit, or until they created another one is like, well, and into that here's problem. the very interesting point you bring up is if you look at the user experience uh, solely on a dealer level, I'm looking mm -hmm. through this thing. I have somebody standing in front of me that wants to order this helmet. Their next job is to go to a portal that all the, the part numbers are coming out of. And if there's any disconnect, anything like that, there is still a manual kind of like, hey, you want this thing? Okay, if we don't have it in the store, we'll go get it for you. Yeah. But any mismatch on that and... Oddly enough, too, in this weird world that the digital world works, the catalog gets kind of part and parceled out, and we give them all the assets that created that, and that ends up in an online catalog. So there has to be a lot of connection to that, too, because um, – uh -huh. and, and this comes back to how did I build the production file, right? So knowing where all those assets are in the document, um, are those all neatly contained so that they can get – you know, a reproducible HTML version of it out there mm -hmm. in the world. Um, you know, this is what I always say to designers that work for me is build the file. Like you're not going to work on it anymore. Yeah. Meaning I need to go in and enter that because my busy day, I don't get back to it until 1130 at night. And you know, you changed some copy for me and maybe updated an image, but if you didn't update that image correctly, man, I got to go like hunt around for it. And that's miserable. So mm -hmm. you don't want to be there, but yeah, the no. proofing process was, really something, but the getting it in there to start with, you know, we get a spreadsheet and then we have a big directory full of images and you're doing a lot of mapping. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes it's even a guess at that, at the initial mapping, and then you get directed back. So again, partnership, you got to have people that the other eyes that are good at that stuff to, to, yeah. to source it out for you. Yeah. So was this all like electronic proofing or did you actually get physical color proofs like in hand? All electronic, just because all of the electronic. time frame. Yeah. And and, and neat, oddly enough, there was, you know, we were designing for print like we would hope it would be printed, but things were so unstable at that time with COVID that um, we knew it was going to be digital, but yep. um, even to get up a digital proof, we, we still had to go through quite a bit of proofing, you know, but on the more content side of proofing, that number's wrong, or can you change, you know, the mm -hmm. description of a color? to be yeah. consistent with the way we say that color all, you know, all through the book too. And that's a, that's another thing that I think kind of gets overlooked in proofing. It's one, one thing to have accurate information, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing is to have consistent 
information. Yeah. How are you using M dashes versus N dashes? Are you using hyphens? Are you using bullet points? Are you using, you, you know, it gets, it gets a little crazy. And I think that's the, that is the detail thing that I do have to pay attention to whether I like it mm -hmm. or not. But to me, I, that, that, that gets into a world of what's the design language I'm constructing here. And mm -hmm. it does come back to a clarity making standpoint, because I think as a designer, I think one of the things that I like to do in my design processes is sometimes I like to establish in a rule so that I don't have to ask myself the question earlier. Hmm. Yeah. I got to a new bullet list. What am I going to do here? It shouldn't be a question. If you're at like page 20, you know, you what you're know doing. how you're doing that already and just do it. Yeah. Right. So if you ever get asked, why are you doing it that way? You're like, well, it's how we're doing it through the whole book. Might not be the right answer, but you have an answer. <laughs> you have an answer. And I'm assuming you put all of this together um, in InDesign and you basically just established your your heading fonts and your sub fonts and all, all that kind of jazz built into there. Yep. And I wish I could tell you that I, I, am, uh, I would be good with like creating like styles and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm pretty much like for being the hyperactive ADD guy, I, I somehow can build a style sheet in my head. Yeah. And um, I usually kind of know, man, that 42 point headline starts to feel right. And then I just drag it across. I've been doing it long enough. If I was to make multiple versions of this book for this client, I would probably then go back in real time and build styles mm -hmm. so that I can do it. So like my, uh, we've, we've talked before about uh, the, some of the education clients I work for where we do tons of rep repetitive collateral or update things on an annual basis. Yeah. Those all have style sheets built in. This one yeah. was a little um, unwieldy in, in that way. I, 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 I'd be honest, man. Like even if in more ways than one, right? Yeah, completely. Well, and I, I do, I think the same thing too. And, and some of my web work, you know, uh, I'm not a great file, uh, a layer namer, mm -hmm. but I am a good organizer through layer. I have other ways so that we can still find structure in it. Yeah. But I also try not to encumber myself with like, man, that's just going back and doing too much like cleanup in this file because it needs yeah. to go to production now. So yeah, and that's actually what we one of the things that we teach through Print Design Academy is that you know designers who don't have that strong understanding of of structure and layers and building that early on, it's like this is how your layering should be set up in a print file, especially one like this where you've got 120 pages of all kinds of assets, all kinds of different things coming into this thing. This is how you keep it organized and not lose well, your absolute mind. And it's funny that you mentioned that. So uh, in our work that we did with uh, Cannondale, I, yeah. I hear this is only a year or two ago. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot about layering in InDesign because they, they're, because the, you're talking about their pubs all went from English, one version to being taken and then translated. And then how do we make that easy for them? So this book was built, I would bet five layers in InDesign. Yeah. So you have anything background. So yeah. the blacks, the texture, and then you had photographic layer yeah. and then we have typography as a layer. And then I think I usually do keep like logos and stuff like that on its own layer. So, mm -hmm. you know, in a book like this, you'd have the brand's logo, but then we do have uh, elements that are being brought in. Like uh, if they license a technology inside a helmet or something mm -hmm. like that, those still sit in that same level. Um, and I wasn't a big user of la layers in InDesign until five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, but that is an important thing that I even think about that now I just do by default. And it's even not unlike folder structure though, too, right? Like, uh, when I start a project, 
I, I at a bare minimum, and I even do this with every single designer that I work on, whether I'm working on a one page sheet for a software client or a 120 page mm -hmm. catalog, they're built exactly the same way. You have yeah. a directory for your images. There may be subdirectories in there for apparel or helmets or whatever, but at its core base, I build everything, whether it's an illustrator, just again, I want to be able to give one folder to somebody and say, you should be able to do everything you need to from in here. Yes. Not like images on my desktop, images <laughs> like still on yeah. Google. Go find you know? those in my documents somewhere. I'm pretty sure they're saved in there. Yeah. It, uh, that yeah. one came out of my email. I've actually done that before where I've made a mistake and placed something like out of email. And yeah. then I like, I, I'm like, I know it's this name and I find it and I can see this crazy path. That's like, it shows to me, it's still an email. And I'm like, my God, dude, what did I just do? And then, you know, you got to take it out and go put it in the right thing and then relink it. So yeah. yeah, very important. So from the first conversation about this project to holding the first finished book in your hand, what is that timeline? And also what did that feel like when you finally held that in your hand? I would say, I think from the first conversation we had to literally holding it in hand was probably four months. We had a finished four months. That we is had a finished catalog for something like this. We had a finished catalog in three months, but it took deciding on finding a printer. Are we going to print it? We're not going to print it. We might want to print it. You should print it. Hey, we can't print it. <laughs> so it was like it moved around so much, and then I think by the time, and then every once in a while, we'd still get things like a product number would change, and then yeah. now I, I always joke, but like. I think you can have a one day old company that has legacy because of the internet, right? So the instant you publish a PDF, that thing's out there somewhere, even if you air quotes, pull it down yeah. and, and replace it. <clears throat> and so we were changing product numbers and things like that um, till we finally went to print. Uh, but yeah. I would bet it was end to end four months, but <clears throat> I don't know how much you do this in, in your print experience, but you know, there was a lead up in that, time where long before we really got into InDesign or anything like that, we were trying to really help the client understand the organization of the book, which we took on. Most people would look at what we did and, and kind of either at a bare minimum, they'd see it as a sitemap. Mm -hmm. You were talking about a website yeah. um, and, and really showing that structure because we need to do that because you're sending a million people off to go do things. Okay. You got to start shooting product photography. You got, you got to start writing headlines and yeah. flavor copy. You need to start, you know, finding us all the part numbers and yeah, without that, I don't know how we would have tackled something that big. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You, when you've got a team and you've got people looking after different aspects of it, you gotta be organized with some sort of, um, you know, end result. This is what we're going to end up with. And you own this piece, you own this piece, you own this piece, you own this piece, and I'll put it all together. Right. Yeah. And and I think even, you know, I've, I've been involved in a couple mailer projects lately. And it was funny because you get content given to you in a, usually nowadays, like in a Google Doc or something, right? And yeah. then your job is to start to show it back to them. Hey, by the way, you gave me this content. It's a trifold brochure. Do you know that it's going to break up this way? <clears throat> and then how do you want to fold it? Because it's going to change... So you and I were having a lovely discussion and there's nothing more than I love making like little thumbnail dummies. Like yeah. it's so yeah, yeah. and there'll be, there'll be funny little things cause it's mechanical. Right. And it, and it's user experience. It's like, Hey, when I go from cover to what if we just did this big wash of color? Okay, cool. And then the next spread is white, but it's tons of data in it. You know, like you're making those decisions, but you can't see it until it's kinetic. Yeah. And so I had a phone call with this client about the mailer <clears throat> and it was funny cause I had, it's a three trifold brochure. 
But there's a million ways to fold that. And then I was also, by the way, did you know that when you, you go from here to here, it looks like this, but then if it's a Z fold, it could be, you know, and then all of a sudden you're, you're breaking brains because they were like, Oh, we didn't think, we didn't think about that because so many people think in, yeah. you know, scroll. Right. Yeah. 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 Cause even when you're, you know, when you're thinking of unfolding a brochure, opening a booklet, like what is that experience going to be like, what are you revealing? What story are you trying to tell and how do you want that to flow? And does the content connect? Cause a lot, sometimes I get in these worlds, maybe I'm overstepping my bounds, but I'll break people's content up through pagination too, because you're like, that stuff's not going to fit on the cover. You're going to have a really boring, like people will feel like you're, everything's been answered on the cover. So mm-hmm. why even have the inside of the brochure? Cause you guys tried to put all this info on there. And so a lot of times, you know, I'll try and be like, I'll make a dummy. And then you're on zoom, literally showing it to somebody <laughs> like, like yeah. this. And then you're then like, okay, you then it's going to do this. Yeah. yeah. So hundred percent. Um, so last question I want to get to here is when you finally did get a copy in your hand, are you nervous? Are you excited? Are you all of the above? What's the feeling? I had a funny experience with the the catalog when it came because I literally had spent, you know, four months. As, it, when you think about me as a designer sitting there literally every day doing something on that for a couple of hours, yeah. four months is a lot for me, at least the way my projects go. Yeah. And it showed up and I think I was in a little bit of a busy period. <clears throat> and when I get... So I have a couple of magazine subscriptions, but when they show up, it gets a place on my desk. Yeah. Like, I, and I, whether it's Thrasher or this magazine I read called Meta, I, it sits next to my desk and then I, I leaf through it, but I want the time to look at it. So the catalogs came, they were in a little, you know, nice little package. Mm-hmm. I knew what was in there. I didn't set them down until I knew I would have time to look at them because I wanted them to stop me and I wanted to. I wanted to enter into it two ways. I wanted to enter it into it in a way, and I haven't done this big of a print project. I've done so much packaging, you know, and you're like, yeah, but there's 20,000 cans sitting on a loading dock. But to me, that's one design. Yeah, it's one design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like, oh yeah, I remember when I did that and how painful it was. And um, <laughs> and and you're, I wanted the time. Like I would digest anything else. And so <clears throat> I literally made uh, time for it one morning when I came into the studio, because a lot of times I read my websites and I do the things I do just to get mm-hmm. my day going. Yep. Uh, creative call it calisthenics. Have you ever thought about that? Like I even prioritize work. Like that's low oh. cerebral load, but high hand load. So like, I oh. like to start on those kind of projects in the morning. And then I work my way into like, okay, you're warmed up. And, and, and so I wanted to use my own work as like something to enjoy inspired by so I could go start my day. But I had to make time for it. So it was, uh, and there was a little bit of a fear that like the reason I also wanted to set it aside, I didn't (laughs) want it to detonate because if I found a typo or if there was something that didn't come out quite right, and there is, I could, if we and you were sitting in a room right now, I'd walk you through it and like, I really wish I had done that different, you know, or something like that. But we're critical of ourselves, right? I think that's always the case. That's always going to be the case. But that's with anything that has the degree of finality that print does. There's also something kind of awesome in that. As a guy who has a few tattoos, yeah. there's something cool about really bad tattoos because at least it's a marker in your life. It's a story. It's yeah, something. It's something there. you can tell. Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. 
Jay, that is, that's it for the print design podcast, man. I'm so glad you were able to hop on here and share this book with us, this whole catalog that you put together and, you know, share all of the pieces that went into it and the steps that went into it and, and the story behind it. So thank you so much for spending the time and being my guest here today. Uh, you're welcome, man. Thanks so much for doing what you do too. This is, I, you know, I, I, every time a new podcast drops or I see something on Instagram from you, I'm always like, oh man, this guy's like holding down the creative community for us. And I, I think that we need more, more folks like you. So thanks for having me on and, and letting me share my, my stories and ramble a bit for you. <laughs> I love it, man. Thanks so much for saying that. All right, everybody, that is the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for checking it out. If you're digging what you're hearing here on the Print Design Podcast, head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you are listening to this, and leave a rating and a review. They make us smile. If, if it does anything else, it makes us smile. Also, don't forget to head over to uh, YouTube for Print Design Academy YouTube. The link is down in the description of this podcast. We made it real easy for you. Head over there, subscribe, and like all the shenanigans over there. We're just teaching you about print, how print is, is, is awesome, why print is so awesome, and how you can create awesome print yourself. Thanks. We'll see you next week.